You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 226. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock, Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We have a great show for you this week. I will start with a brief excerpt from my presentation at the Toronto Money Show this past week on current market valuations, including a bifurcation of the market and what you should focus on in your portfolio. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Aaron answers a listener question on Pollard Banknote Limited, symbol PBL on the TSX, a leading lottery partner to more than 60 lotteries worldwide, providing high-quality instant ticket products, licensed games, in-lane ticket options, and sales driving merchandising solutions. While the stock is up 46% year to date, it remains at half the price it traded at at its highs in 2021. Aaron lets you know our thoughts on the current valuations and what would it have to achieve to be a recommendation. Finally, Brett answers a question on Gatekeeper Systems Inc., symbol GSI on the TSX Venture, a provider of intelligent video and data solutions designed to provide a safer transportation environment for children, passengers, and public safety personnel on multiple transportation modes. Gatekeeper is primarily a contract-driven business and is subject to significant quarterly fluctuations, but has had strong growth year-to-date after a strong Q1 and trades at a reasonable valuation. Brett digs in further and lets you know his thoughts on the stock, which is up 20% in 2023, but remains down 68% from its highs of 2021. All right, let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Aaron Dunn, and a sole member of the Killer Bees, Brett, with Brennan, lost somewhere in the backwoods of Saskatoon, no doubt taking a selfie with a moose. That's what so I what, what I can Brennan envision him right day now. off anyways? Does anybody know, or he was just keeping that secret? With his family at a lake. That's what I believe, uh, right? So there could be some moose selfies going on. Lake yeah, country, yeah. yeah. I could see that. I could yeah. see that. Well, this past week, we have to tell you, um, I attended two conferences Aaron was at one of them, and uh, Brennan was at one of them. The first one was a research conference in Vancouver. It was called the Planet Microcap Conference. I spoke at the event, and we also interviewed about 12 management teams. Um, I can't speak for the companies Brennan interviewed. He can uh, talk to you about those next week, but I interviewed Kraken Robotics, Electrovaya, which I always have a trouble saying their name, Tribe Property Technology, Seacom Satellite, Wishpond Technologies, Microbics Biosystems. Uh, so some interesting names in there, uh, particularly the first two. Wishpond was interesting. We know Seacom from way back, uh, having bought them originally in the $0.42 cent range, sold at about uh, in the $3 range. It trades around a dollar now, pays a dividend. So it's, it's a decent company, contract-driven, like we ta- talked about. I'm going to talk, or uh, Brett's going to talk about a company that's contract-driven t- here today too as well. But it pays a dividend. It's interesting, cash-rich. 
but there's some companies there that were um, none of them are in our coverage right now, but we're uh, monitoring them closely. Was interesting. And, I, was, I was interested to hear about Kraken because we had yeah we had Kraken as a year stock our take just the week before you did the interview. By the way, they had watched that, so there are people watching these definitely. Yeah, they had they had said, "Oh, you guys did a review," and and we said yes, and we're looking further. So we're gonna set up a further interview with them because you only do a speed dating, you get like twenty five. 30 minutes there. Uh, we got to go deeper than that, but they were, they were quite interesting. And if they can execute in the second half of this year, it's more interesting. And um, we attended the money show, Aaron. Uh, first off, I would say my comments, and then I'll get your thoughts on it, but sure. it's always great to get out to Toronto. Um, our talk was well attended, but my general thoughts on the event was that it's not nearly overall as well attended as, as last year. Um, and some other years. The, the show missed the mark for me on a number of fronts. I'm just going to say bluntly. First off, there wasn't a single stock picker or analyst type panel at the event. Traditionally at these, uh, they have a number of those. Uh, a panel where an audience gets to hear from you know the current recommendations from top analysts in the country. There are typically some of the best attended presentations at these events in my experience. Last year, I did one with three other analysts. It was full room. There's likely 500 people in there this year. Like I said, not a single stock picker panel, which I think is a miss. They had one panel uh, that I saw it was called essentially about social investing conducted by 20 to 30 somethings. Um, the panelist was all these following all these people on the panelists had great social media following. So they're probably trying to bring in their, their followings into that event. And, uh, these individuals on the panel, I think, had partnered uh, to, uh, they had a brokerage, essentially, a brokerage concept. Now, uh, but the problem is, I think they're speaking to a largely 50 plus audience. So it misses the mark there. I mean, that's their traditional audience. Uh, and it just, it kind of, it kind of, uh, not well attended. It is also hard as hell to get downtown Toronto at any time. So, I mean, they're fighting that as well. But, um, I think there were some opportunities uh, to have more people in there, and it just it just missed the mark on that from that respect. Right, right, yeah. yeah, and it's like the the social media investing mentality. You know, that that's obviously yeah. something that's very contrary to what we would do, which is good in depth research on individual companies. Like finding, I mean, one of the first slides I had in my presentation was, you know, as a piece of advice for stock investors, what you want to look for is you want to look for companies first and foremost that have assets that are in some way essential or that are that are solving some type of problem that society faces. Like these are the types of businesses that you want to invest in. Now, if you can do some initial company discovery through social media, through crowdsourcing ideas, there's nothing wrong with that. But beyond that, you need to know that it's a profitable business, a real company. Um, most people don't do the financial analysis. I mean, it's countless times over the years I've spoken to people that have invested in companies that don't even have revenue. And they're quite surprised to hear when I tell them, you know, that company hasn't even produced a dime of revenue, never mind profit. But, you know, when you when you look at social media investing as anything that's supposed to provide, you know, the full cycle of research in terms of like, here's the idea, buy it. Uh, your crowdsourcing ideas, it's like the blind leading the blind, really, right? Yeah. Like you, you just because a lot of people like something like people will say, okay, well, you know, it's really, it comes down to the prof, po popularity of a stock that's going to drive the share price. And in the short term, I would agree, 
but that's a very difficult thing to trade. Most people aren't going to be able to trade that. Um, but for a well, stock and then to be you're popular, trading relative rather than investing too. And it's exactly. Yeah, but for 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 a yeah. stock to maintain its popularity over any type of a reasonable time horizon, uh, that there needs to be something a solid foundation behind that, which is almost always going to be growth and profitability and cash flow and being in. Uh, a strong industry, a strong segment of a strong industry and doing well there. Um, not just making promises to the market or or having like a very fancy uh, business model or fancy fancy sounding business model that people like because people will get bored. I mean, the, 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 yeah. the market can be fickle. If there's not something solid supporting the growth and popularity of the stock, then that, that popularity is going to wane very quickly. And, and, and I don't want it misunderstood. Like, I'm not saying don't have a panel on social investing. I think, you know, have that panel. Like, it's great it to draw in a younger crowd. What you're saying. Yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah, but to be the focus of an entire event um, that is traditionally about, you know, good, solid recommendations uh, and that you can profit for for the long term. That can be part of the solution. It just was curious to me that they didn't have those panels because so many people come up to us at the event and say, the reason I'm here is to get the stock picks. Like and that's what you hear at these events. That's what many events that ha- that draw out retail investors are driven by is the actual stock recommendations or the recommendations of an ETF or the recommendations of gold or whatever investment that you're looking at, whether it be Bitcoin at this event. And that's why you have those panels. And it was strange to me to not see those there. And I mean, I, I think they had an opportunity. We even, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to, bash on the conference, but it sounds like I am. But I mean, we had, we had done a presentation in front of a large audience at this show the, the prior year and recommended a company called Hammond Power, which our listeners are very, very familiar with. It was trading at $16 to, you know, on Friday, it was $56, basically $55. It was basically the best performing revenue producing stock on the TSX over that time. Talk about that. Say, we're going to then have our next stock picks at this event and draw out a lot of people. There's other conferences that we go, we go to, they do that. I just, you know, I'm, I'm venting that today because I think you missed the mark. I'd love to fly out there and talk to more people, but uh, the event just wasn't as well attended as, as we typically see. And I think it's because they didn't have those panels for, from my perspective. But we did note, Aaron and me walked around the event on a lighter note, that we uh, saw Canada's youngest retiree there, Brett. You got you got a picture that you can put up for us, right? Um, yeah. A gentleman had a booth there, and in tongue in cheek, myself and Aaron saw. Um, I think this book was written around twenty years ago, and, and we looked at the gentleman who had to sign up, Canada's youngest retiree. And you know, we we he myself and Aaron consider ourselves old half the time, and he was older than us. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I, I was thinking like times must be rough. Yeah, I know. His youngest retiree is older. Is seventy five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. He he didn't look seventy five. He looked great for his age. He's probably you know 50, 50, 53 in that range, probably yeah. right. But um, anyways, I what came to mind to me is you need to retire that slogan. So and we're not honestly. I, I we took a look into his book and there was some good common sense advice in that book. So we're not, we're not hammering on the book or anything. There really was some good common sense advice in there. It's just a funny image when I was walking through and looking at this, 
there was like BMO's booth or Royal Bank's booth. And then, oh, Canada's youngest retiree. And it was, <laughs> it just didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Got to well, retire I, that. As an example, I don't call myself the youngest anything anymore. So. Yeah. <laughs> the the, the, youngest, the, the youngest guy yeah. in the, in the long-term care home, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and we're, uh, we shouldn't make fun of anything. It just, we found it funny. We just good, funny good lighthearted. Yeah. yeah, we hope so. Yeah. We'll probably get ripped now because of that. Anyways, uh, do any other comments on the show, Aaron? Or I mean, not much. I mean, one thing that happened last week was on Wednesday, the Bank of Canada um, made the decision to hold interest rates steady. So that was expected. They did not increase rates as they did um, in the meeting before. And there have been signs of sluggishness in the Canadian economy. So that's leading people to think that maybe now the Bank of Canada is finished with their with their uh, rate increases. Um, if that is the case, you know, obviously, depending how the how the economy trends. Um, but if they are finished and we are going to see maybe over the next year to 18 months, rates actually start to go lower than where they are right now, start to decrease. Um, that will certainly be, you know, a positive for some, some industries. Uh, one of the, one of the questions I've gotten in the past is there are, you know, several of the more stable, higher yield, large cap dividend growth companies that have really kind of, you know, had lackluster performance over the last year or kind of traded in a range uh, people have asked, you know, what what is the catalyst to basically break the th these things out? A lot of the times the financial performance has been good. It's really just the stock market performance that's been, you know, a little bit disappointing or lackluster. Um, well, one of the things is once we start see to see rates come down even a little bit or the mentality is that rates are going to start trending down, uh, that would certainly be a catalyst for some of these large cap dividend dividend companies. Um, you know, right now you can get 5% uh, plus you know, maybe even 6% now on a, on a GIC. So certainly compared to where fixed income was a couple of years ago, you know, it much more competitive against dividend stocks. The difference, of course, and I've talked about this before as well, is that one of the big differences between a dividend growth stock and a fixed income product like a GIC is that the dividends for dividend growth stock, there's potential that those dividends, those income streams are going to continuously increase over time every year. That is not the case with a fixed income product. Um, it will eventually uh, mature. You will have to, if you want to go into another fixed income product, you may be getting a higher coupon rate or a lower coupon rate. Just depends where interest rates are at the time. So, um, but yeah, uh, yeah it'll you... be interesting to see over the next, uh, Next couple of quarters here, how things go with the with the Bank of Canada's decision, and how the increase in the dividend can be powerful for you as an individual or any investor mm -hmm. over time is mm -hmm. like I'll give you an example. When we originally bought Dynacor, the yield was you know, in the range of three and a half, three percent, um, but they've upped their dividend like four times since then, and the effective yield bought at that price is in the range of eight percent now. Yeah, uh, the stock has gone up too, so. And if that continues, like if it, 10 years from now, every year they're increasing their dividend, you can get effective yields of 15 to 20% on stocks yep. that you bought you know, or higher. And, yep. and it's a tremendously powerful uh, way to create capital over the long term and compound that. But it's a great way to do it. And I don't think investors take that into account all the time. They just well, it's, it's, right it's now. seen as a more boring way to invest, right? Like what's what's 
you know, exciting now is like the social media and fasting, right? Like the meme stocks or crypto or, you know, when, when it's, when it's fashionable, when it's popular, but you know, another, one of the companies that I covered at the money show is Brookfield infrastructure, which is a longstanding recommendation. We recommended it in 2011. And I just, I illustrated that over that period of time, about 12 years, you know, we recommended it at an effective price of about 960. Um, and they, it's paid out income distributions of about $15 over that period of time. Plus the, the, the <clears throat> price, the stock price has gone up to about 43, $44. You still have a growth oriented company, um, where that, that income distribution is, is essentially growing every year. Right. So, you know, it's not something where it's really exciting over the next six months necessarily to invest in these dividend growth stocks. But if you have a, a, a reasonable time horizon, going out multiple years. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of torque on, uh, on that type of a strategy as well. If you pick the right companies, of course. For sure. All right. Well, let, I'm going to do a quick excerpt from my, unless anybody else had anything else to say, we're good. I'm going to do Nothing. the excerpt. All right. So as part of our presentation, I looked at the rally in North American markets, uh, starting with the S and P 500 and NASDAQ indexes after both were sharply lower in 2026. You can see there the S&P 500 down 19.3%, recovered year to date up 16.9%. Uh, Similar, the NASDAQ down 33% in 2022, uh, started with a bang. It's, it's, the recovery has been more pronounced on the NASDAQ where it was more pronounced in terms of uh, a downturn over the 2022. And in 2022, that was really a historic decline. As we can see on the chart here, however, the tech-driven exchange has rebounded year-to-date, up now 33.8%. Again, not clawing back all of the losses, but a significant percentage. Uh, but it is a tale of two markets. The gains in 2023 have been driven largely by eight stocks known as the Mega Cap 8. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Netflix, NVIDIA, and Tesla. They alone account now for over 26% of the S&P 500 and roughly 50% of its year-to-date returns. Eight stocks powering the total return of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500. The remainder of the index and the smaller cap companies in particular have not fared nearly as well. So let's look here at the broader valuations first before I get into that and a potential opportunity. Now, broadly, one metric we like to use or look at uh, when we look at the broader markets is the valuations is the Schiller PE. It is a more reasonable market valuation indicator than the regular PE ratio because it eliminates fluctuations of the ratio caused by variations of profit margins during business cycles. Now, here's the Schiller PE over the last 20 years. It reached its highest point right here, November 2021, in the range of 38.6. That would be 47% higher of, above the average PE of the last 20 years, which was 26.2. Uh, now, this, the highest ratio that it has reached in the past, that was the highest ratio it's reached in the past 20 years. Now, this is looking back over about 100 plus years. The highest point, that point was only exceeded once. And that is in the dot-com madness right there in 1999 at roughly 44. Now, where are we today? That should be the next question here. Well, valuations today, we look at the Schiller P, it's roughly 31.1. That's 18.7% higher than that 20-year average I talked about, which was 26.2. 
And uh, that is far better than uh, the range of 38 that it was hit in November of uh, 2022, or the, no, 2023, sorry, uh, which was 47% above the PE of the last 20 years, the average PE of the last 27 years, or 20 years, sorry. However, it is instructive to point out that the Schiller PE is still 79% above its all-time average. Its all-time average is 17.4. That indicates we are not hyster- historically cheap or hysterically cheap either, but mainly historically cheap. It's better than the peak, but the market remains bifurcated. As far as the forward-looking regular PE on the markets to transition to where we are on a forward-looking basis today, it is a tale of two markets in terms of valuations. Now, this is a simple chart. Well, kind of looks simple. kind of looks like a plate of rainbow spaghetti to me, but it shows the disparity between the large and mega cap stocks represented on the uh, red and purple lines, respectively, and between the small cap universe. That's represented by the green line here, and that is following the S&P 600 small cap index. Now, I'm going to just give you the broader forward-looking PEs on these three indexes. S&P 500 large cap is at 18.5. The mega cap 8 is 28.1. The S&P 600 small cap is 13.8. So larger caps and the mega cap 8 are trading at significantly higher multiples than the S&P small cap 600. To give you an idea of the constituents of the S&P small cap 600, Uh, To be included in this index, a stock must have a total market cap of ranging between 850 million to 5.2 billion. So that tells you what is considered essentially a small cap stock in the US via this index. Drilling down on small caps versus large cap story, the valuations here, this is uh, since, not that, this is since 2005, the S&P 600 has historically traded at a premium to their larger cap S&P 500 counterparts. But we can see today small caps trade at a significant discount to their large cap peers. Again, this highlights, this chart highlights the discount here. It's pronounced and likely presents a long-term opportunity if you're looking at quality growth-oriented small caps. So the question is, what should you do today? One thing you can do is just focus on what you can control in your portfolio. That would be number one, the construction of portfolio. This is how uh, to build your portfolio, how many stocks you own, over what period to build it, and when to adjust and review your portfolio. Well, you can get that advice by coming to one of our live webinars on demand. Find them at www.keystocks.com. We'll show you the simple steps of how to build a 15 to 25 stock portfolio. And I talked about that briefly in the presentation at the Money Show. But number two is also just the composition of your portfolio. What type of stocks you want to own in that portfolio? Those are the things that you need to focus on right now. Now, I'll tell you what we're avoiding in the market. We just looked at over 3,000 companies in the U.S. and what we're avoiding when we look at these companies. Near term, I would not recommend buying the index given the valuations, but fortunately is not a market of stocks. It's a stock market. There are still select companies that are growing that look attractive. Now I can go into what we're looking for and what we'd avoid today here. What we'd avoid is, or what we'd really look at is to pay attention to the balance sheet, particularly cyclicals with heavy debt. 
This is where you can really get into trouble in a highly leveraged company. Interest payments have gone higher and they're eating into profitability. So companies like restaurants, hotel chains, airlines, furniture, high-end clothing retailers, automotive manufacturers, these type of cyclicals, look at the balance sheets closely when you're looking into those businesses. Now, this doesn't mean that um, cash flow, strong cash flow producing businesses with debt, you should eschew completely right now. They are fine if they're producing strong cash flow, but we are favoring cash rich businesses. Uh, these are stocks with a net cash balance on their balance sheet and a strong, they're producing strong cash. Yes, we want them to be able to weather a downturn, but that's not the sole reason we look at them. We want them to be able to profit from it, make acquisitions uh, in times when they see other businesses on sale. Now, an example of this I'll give you from our research, and I talked about them at the event, would be Dynacor. It's about 33% of its market cap in cash, zero debt, and a profitable business. Another example I can give you is a company we've talked about a number of times now is Hammond Power Solutions, HPS.A on the TSX. Huge cash flow in 2022. It went from a net debt to net cash positions. It can expand now organically and through acquisition. Now, what is Hammond Power? Well, they are a leader in the design and manufacture of custom electrical engineered magnetic standard electric dry type cast resin and liquid filled transformers. Those are not Autobots and Decepticons, although that would be seriously cool. The transformers that Hammond Power makes are used to step up and step down travel for a long, for it to step up over a long distance and then step it down for an application such as to bring it into your home or a charging station. In fact, every Tesla charging station in Canada has a Hammond Power transformer. For years, we have seen it as a backdoor way to play the electrification boom. When we recommended it several years ago, it traded in the seven to eight dollar range, and that was a re recommendation. It was trading around seven to eight times earnings. That is real earnings, not an adjusted basis versus the many obvious electric vehicle or EV plays like charging station companies and EV manufacturers that then traded at ridiculous valuations if they even had uh, underlying cash flow. Now, Hammond Power had decent growth in its core business, but as the world electrified, our thought was the growth could increase. Now that has followed particularly over the last 18 months and the stock has followed. It still trades at 11 and a half to 12 times this year's expected EPS. Hammond is a good example of one of the type of unique opportunities we scour the markets to uncover for our clients on a daily basis. With the smaller growth oriented business currently trading at relatively attractive historical valuations, there may be some longer term opportunities presenting themselves to find the next Hammond Power and help you produce outstretched returns over the next decade. And that's what we try, try to do on a uh, daily basis for our clients in their portfolios. So hopefully that makes sense. That's a snippet from what we talked about at the money show. Any comments yeah, on yeah, that? No, I, I find it interesting how um, on one hand, you know, the market overall is so much more expensive than it was historically on mm -hmm. a, like on a historical comparison yet small caps actually are not at least not yes. to the extent. And if you go back 10 years are actually, you know, at average to below average levels of valuation. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the it's flipped. There was a premium for, you yeah. know, uh, well over a decade and beyond that uh, in the teams of, and especially in quality oriented, growth oriented, small caps in that range, 
like we're not talking about a fifty million dollar market cap on the TSX venture as a small cap. You know, you're talking about eight hundred plus million up to the five point eight, I think it was billion dollar market cap. So, you know, many of those are high quality businesses, growth oriented, just considered smaller cap companies in the US market. Those, because of the fact that they you know, have the ability to grow uh, at a better rate uh, historically than say, a, you know, a company with a 500 uh, or, or a billion dollar or $500 billion market cap. It's easier to grow a business when you have smaller uh, numbers. Now it's, they traded at a premium, it's flipped. They're trading at a discount today. A lot of that is powered by the, you know, massive multiples you're seeing on some of the um, uh, mega cap eight. But, you know, overall the small caps even removed, removing those mega cap eight, they are trading at uh, higher valuations than the large caps are trading at higher valuations than the small caps. So. It could be an interesting time. That doesn't mean uh, you know you rush out and load your portfolio with small caps today, and you shouldn't do that at any time. It can be a balanced part of an overall portfolio, and that's what we recommend to our clients. And uh, again, it's got to be cash-producing businesses, good balance sheets, good growth ahead of them. But having some of those in your portfolio uh, will likely be a benefit to you over the next 10 years. All right, let's move to the next segment here. I think Aaron's going to handle that. And you answering a question on Pollard Banknote, which is an interesting company, but um, had, a, had a good start to this year. But again, it's still down significantly from its highs. I mean, you see many charts like that, particularly smaller mid-cap companies that got into some silly season in 2021 and uh, you know have seen their share price cut in half from there. But a good start to this year in terms of where the share price has gone. Is it justified? Aaron's going to let you know. Absolutely. So Pollard is a company, we're, we're very familiar with the company. We've been following it for uh, many years, five to 10 years, actually. So one of the reasons why we've been following it is because I just think it's an interesting business. Uh, what they do is uh, Pollard is a leading lottery partner for over 60 global lotteries. Uh, and what they do is they um, they they print lottery tickets, uh, physical tickets, uh, including pull tab tickets, bingo paper. Uh, they provide vending machines. Uh, they also provide a number of digital services in support of lottery operations. And this would include game apps, iLottery solutions, um, and others as well. So really, it's a, it's a lot. It's a it's a lottery service company, and lottos are you know generally considered to be a, a defensive industry. Um, it's not something that is necessarily very uh, economically sensitive. So we like that about the business. We like that it's been a profitable company. Um, just to go through some of the data here, symbol is PBL. It trades on the TSX Toronto Stock Exchange, trades at a price of about $26.50, uh, 700 million, 713 million market cap. 27 million shares outstanding. Now, one thing that's really important to note about Pollard is that it's uh, it was originally founded in 1907, um, and it is still controlled by the founding family. So 64.2% of the company's shares are controlled by the Pollard family and the other 35.8 by public shareholders. Um, so this is uh, this is an interesting thing to talk about because generally we would say that a high amount of insider ownership, especially by the founder or the founding family, is a good idea because it aligns um, those owners uh, with the with the shareholders. Now, in this case, I would actually argue that sixty four percent might actually be too high. 
Uh, and my my logic here is just that when the family, the founding family owns such a commanding percentage of the outstanding shares, it really almost kind of becomes a family business. Um, and I, I, w- I would even question why, unless they have to raise a lot of capital, which Polar doesn't, why they would even be public. Um, now, I think that they've done a fairly good job of, of running the company. There's, there's no complaints that I have there. But you could certainly be in situations where there are decisions that might work well for the family um, that don't necessarily work well for the shareholders. So I, I don't have any issues specifically about their stewardship of the company. Uh, it's profitable business. They're, they haven't gone out there and made foolish decisions with the capital structure, which we would not expect them to do, um, given that they own a lot of the company. Um, one thing, you know, Polar pays a very small dividend, um, almost insignificant. So maybe if it were, you know, more focused on the public market shareholders, that would be they, they would pay they'd pay a, a, a more meaningful dividend. Um, but I would just say that you know. This is a company that is completely controlled by the founding family, and there are good things about that. There are also risks. But anyways, let's get into the actual company here. Uh, Take a look at where the stock has been over the last 12 months. They've had a pretty good run in the market uh, starting the 12-month period at about $20 and up to $26.50 right now. So good good return over the last 12 months. Now, if I were to pull up a five-year chart, uh, we can see that there's actually been a considerable amount of volatility. Company had a very good run after the pandemic started, actually, like many companies, and then since then has had a big drop in the share price. Uh, recently, the stock price coming back up and showing some signs of strength, but huge amount of volatility and really the stock not going anywhere meaningfully in terms of return, annual average return over the last five years. Um, but last year has been good for the company, for shareholders, the last 12 months. So let's take a look at the financial results and see um, if we can identify some reasons why. Uh, now, the Q2 results at face value look very impressive. Sales of $130 million up for, from $115 million, that's 12% growth. Adjusted EBITDA of $22 million up from about $19 million, so it's 17% growth. And then earnings per share, $0.27. Cents up from nine in the same period last year. That's 200% growth. So the first thing that I'm looking at here is why is adjusted EBITDA growing 17%, whereas earnings per share are growing 200%. Now, adjusted EBITDA is going to represent the operational profitability of the company, whereas earnings per share is going to represent both the operational and financial profitability. So what I mean by that is that earnings per share This is the very bottom line. So it's not just the profitability from operations, but you're also including financing um, expenses and income as well. So that's interest expense, um, interest income in some cases, you're including tax in there. Uh, You know, things that are outside of what we consider to be the operations of the company, but still very impactful to, to the common shareholders. So Really what we want to do here when we see such a discrepancy between the operational profitability and the net profitability is we want to dig a little bit deeper and identify where the gives and takes are during the quarter. So uh, this is going to be a bit of a, a, a financial analysis um, of the company. That's what we're mostly going to focus on in this year's stock our take segment, uh, but for good reason. So 
Um, why don't we just start off with the, I, I pulled up a, a snapshot here of the quarterly income statement. So first thing we're going to do, we're going to start off, start off at the very top line. That's the sales. As I said, 130 million up from 115. So, you know, a little bit less than 15 million in additional sales for the quarter. Um, but the problem here is that right when we look here at the gross profit line, 20.14 million compared to 20.89 million last year. So in spite of 15 million in higher revenue, they actually generated less gross profit. So gross profit is essentially the sales less the expenses that are directly related to the sales or the, the cost of goods sold as they're otherwise mentioned, as otherwise referred to. Um, so right away as we're seeing that um, what we can get from this is that the increase in sales did actually, it did not contribute to the increase in profitability because growth profit was actually lower in the most recent quarter. And we're going to go further down the income statement here. So administration expenses also higher by about 2 million. Uh, selling expenses also higher by about 800,000. So operating expenses were higher. Then we go to the next line here. We see equity investment income, 9.2 million compared to about 5.1 million last year. This is a gain. This is not an expense. Uh, this is a gain that gets added to the net income. So there's about, uh, what, a 4.1 to $4.2 million difference here, additional gain on this line, equity investment um, income. So this is, this is what I would say is the major contributor to the earnings growth over the period, right? We're going to continue to go down. We see operating income from operations, 9.87 compared to 8.72, so about $1.1 million um, higher. Um, then we're going to go down to finance costs. So this is essentially interest expense, 2.7 million compared to 4.7. Okay, so they saved about 2 million in interest expense. Then a line lower, finance income. So this is essentially um, the interest that they're receiving on any cash deposits, 1.7. So that's an additional 1.7 million that we're adding to the to the net income. And then finally, we'll look at the income taxes here. Um, total income taxes, 1.28 million compared to 1.52. So in spite of higher income from operations, there is lower income taxes. So what, what am I getting with all of this? Well, where I'm getting is there is a huge increase in earnings per share, net income. So net income for the period was 7.54 million compared to 2.46 million. So you're looking at about a little more than $5 million difference. 5 million was added to net income. And we need to figure out, well, where did this come from? And where essentially we figured out it came from is the equity investment income, the lower interest expense, the higher interest income, and then the lower income tax. It did not come from the increase in sales. It did not come from the operations of the business, right? So this is very important because when we're trying to get a sense of what growth is going to be like going forward, we can't rely on lower, higher finance income um, or necessarily lower income taxes. Like these are not sustainable drivers of growth. And looking at a line item like equity investment income, well, I don't really know what that is. Um, you know, it's something that's not going through the sales line. So that's something you'd need to look deeper into. What we want to see is that this growth came from the higher sales, ideally stable or higher gross profit margins. And then we basically take it from there. So this is, an, this is a concern in terms of where this 
huge growth in net income came from. Uh, one thing I will do is I will look at the cash flow statement here. Um, when we look at the equity investment income, one of the things I want to know is, is this a cash inflow to the company, right? So it's it's positively impacting net income, but is it actually generating cash? Because that's how you assess earnings quality is, are these net earnings actually translating into cash flow? Well, in this case, it is not uh, invest, investment equity income for the six-month period was $17.8 million. None of that was cash. So that was not a cash inflow. That was just um, an accounting item, right? And the net income for that period was 12.3. So this is a major influencer, this line item equity investment income of the profitability. Um, and it was actually higher for the six-month six period than the entire net income. So this is something we have to pay attention to. This makes the financial reporting much more complicated. Now, I will note um, the cash conversion to earnings actually does still seem to be pretty good. Uh, you know, you have $33.8 million in operating cash flow compared to $12 million in earnings. Um, now, there were uh, non-cash working capital, which will fluctuate from year to year. So, you know, we 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 take that out and what we're, what are we left with? You know, roughly about, I would say, $17 million in operating cash flow. Still higher than the net income reported, um, you know, largely due to the depreciation and amortization that gets added back in because that's a non-cash expense, but there is still a real expense associated with that. Um, so, but very interested to learn about this equity investment income line item. So we can go to note six of the financial statements to figure out what this is. There's two entries here in note six. One is uh, Neo Pollard Interactive LLC. Pollard in conjunction with Neo Games operates NPI. Um, the entity was established to provide uh, iLottery services in Canada and also Michigan iLottery. Uh, Pollard and Neo Games um, operate the iLottery operation for the Michigan Lottery under a separate joint venture agreement. So essentially what this is, is Pollard has a joint venture um, with another company on um, assets and they they recognize the earnings from these assets, um, even though they are not generally a cash inflow to the company. Now, is this necessarily a horrible thing? Not necessarily. I would need to learn more about it. But absolutely, we can see in the cash flow statement that it is not a cash inflow from the company. So you have to be very careful about how you treat um, this line item because it's 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 adding the earnings. It's making the earnings look, look good. It's not contributing to the cash flow. So um, we'll just go on to the balance sheet here. Balance sheet looks okay. I would say still fully leveraged, about 150 million in debt, 260 million in equity. So debt to equity looks fine. Um, but net debt to EBITDA, 2.9 times. I don't think that that is over leveraged. Um, I also don't think that it's under leveraged. I think it, I will just say that it's fully leveraged. And then we'll just look at valuation. So I'm just going to take the, the full earnings that are on the income statement. I'm not even going to take out those non-cash earnings from the joint venture. That would be about 90 cents in earnings per share um, over the last 12 months at the current share price of $26.50. That's about 30 times earnings. Certainly not cheap. You know, given that this is a smaller, thinly traded company, um, with complexities in its financial reporting, I definitely do not believe that uh, 30 times earnings is a cheap multiple. So what is our take on Pollard? I do think it's a unique business. I like where it's positioned. It's been around for a long time. I don't think it's going anywhere. It's in a defensive industry. 
it does have a history of profitability um, and a history of revenue growth. However, a lot of this recent growth that we've seen has been generated from non-operational sources. The financial reporting is complex. You'd really need to deep, dig deeper into it. Uh, fully leveraged balance sheet, and I would say a moderately high valuation. So what would we want to see from the company that would encourage us to maybe pick it up as a recommendation? I would say, you know, focusing on that consistent growth in op in consistent growth from operations. Um, and then also I'd want to be able to buy it at a more attractive valuation. Yeah. And you, you looked at the balance sheet, not necessarily completely over levered, but, um, you know, we wouldn't expect a significant juiced up acquisition, like at this point, no, unless, no. Like, unless like they issue imagine, equity. Like right? that if and the then, balance sheet said, oh, they had, you know, a hundred million in cash and no debt. Yeah. Then we'd yeah. be looking at this. It's like, oh, they, they've got a, a, a treasure trove of, of capital yeah. that they can then go out and they can use to like buy another asset and grow the business that way. So this is why we look at the balance sheet. You know, it's also, I mean, if I were looking at this and it was a, a net debt to EBITDA five times or six times, I'd say you don't even consider it because this thing is so leveraged with debt, you know, mm -hmm. that makes it, that makes it quite high risk. So it's just kind of, it's at that point where, I mean, you know, where would I want to see the leverage? Uh, probably between two to three times. So maybe average that out to 2.5. It's 2.9. It's not horrible. It's not necessarily great. It's just what I would consider fully leveraged. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a really good summary. Let's move on to Gatekeeper Systems, Inc. GSI on the TSX Brent Venture. Brett? Yeah, you, you, got, you got that right. Yeah. It's actually it's interesting tip. that uh, we're doing this one because I... We're doing our CDAR sweep right now, which we go through all TSX and TSX venture listed companies. So the NEO is the few that are in there. And I came across this last week and then we got uh, our. Um, yeah, that's interesting that somebody yeah. reached out at the same time at that the it same just time. pulled up on your list and you mm -hmm. got it. So yeah, who better to look at it then, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a true. good question. It's an interesting company. All right, yep. but uh, I'll get into it. So Gatekeeper System, symbol GSI on the TSX Venture, is a leading provider of intelligent video and data solutions designed to provide safer transportation environment for children, passengers, and public safety personnel on multiple transportation modes. The company breaks its operations into two segments, school and transportation. And it serves both Canadian and U.S. markets, with the lion's share being from the U.S. market. The company currently serves about 3,500 customer school districts across every state and province in U.S. Canada. The stock is currently trading at about 34 cents a share, rising 20% year to date. Gatekeeper defines its revenue motto as platform as a service or pass, not SaaS, pass, which sells its services including on-vehicle recording, GPS, video, video analytics, transit lane enforcement, passenger counting, mobile Wi-Fi, thermal cameras, AI dash cam, and much more as a package service on a recurring contract basis after initial setup. Like a SaaS model, you do see recurring revenue, but the company also has a bit more lumpiness because it has contracts when they're first initiated, they have the set of fees, they have hardware installed and stuff like that. So moving to the income statement. During fiscal Q3 2023, ending May 31st, Gatekeeper had revenue of 5.9 million, up 35% compared to the prior year. 
but down sequentially from the prior quarter's record revenue of $9.7 million. The large fluctuation in revenue on a quarterly basis is due to contract revenue recognition, as they had a large contract in the previous quarter. However, that is not to say the company isn't growing. The year-to-date, so nine months, revenue was up 101% to $20.5 million. As well, notably, the gross margin for the company for the last quarter, so Q3, increased to 50% compared to 41% in the prior year, whereas the nine months has been flat at 44%. The company has flipped into profitability, which is always great to see over the past year, with Q3 having a net income of $440,000 versus a loss of $318,000 in the prior year, with year-to-date having a net income of $2.2 million versus a loss of $800,000, as well as worth noting that the company is now paying taxes, which it previously in its profit quarters was not. So going forward, you can expect taxes, assuming they stay profitable. Gatekeeper was previously profitable prior to COVID-19, but saw significant revenue shrinkage and in turn then EPS turning negative as well. And in this graph, you can see it just fluctuates quite a lot on a quarterly basis. Earnings just have not been consistent so far. I will note as well that the share count only increased by four from 87.6 million at the end of 2019 to 91.5 million, which is about a four and a half percent increase, which isn't a massive drag on the share count. Like we saw some small cap companies to survive through the pandemic, they just diluted and diluted. So it is nice to see that given they had a very material impact due to COVID, that it didn't just dilute its shares into oblivion. Additionally, the company has been able to flip into operating cash flow being positive of 563,000 for the last nine months compared to a deficit of 3.6 million. And this is with increased working capital levels over the past nine months. Gatekeeper has been able to lower its line of credits to only 1.6 million from 3.5 million, which is good to see given it is a variable debt at this time. It is a line of credit, so it's based off prime for whatever currency they're borrowing and plus percentage. And so we're in a high interest rate environment over the past year compared to what we were one or two years ago. It would have been a much higher interest rate expense. As well, net debt, including leases, fell to 1.5 million from 1.9 million, offset by a decrease in cash, of course, compared to their debt. Leverage is not really a concern at this time. If the company is able to stay profitable, it's only like a 0.3.4 uh, net debt to EBITDA. So it's very low. Looking at valuations, Gatekeeper trades at a trailing price sale for only one times and a trailing price earnings seven times. And if you normalize the past 12 months for taxation, which it will, assuming it stays profitable, it will have taxes going forward. It'll be about eight to nine times, depending on the exact tax rate they realize. So the valuation is quite cheap given the recent growth on the top and the bottom line. However, it will touch, be a touch higher if all else equal there is taxation. So our take. The company is returning positive earnings, which is great to see, especially the last quarter having no major contract disclosures. So we see it's more coming from that recurring revenue versus you have one big contract in the next 12 months. You have nothing. It's good to see that they're actually being able to maintain a positive bottom line when it is just that recurring revenue for the most part. The balance sheet is minimally leveraged at this time and it's recently paid down over half, which is also good to see. Moving forward, however, we would like to see sustain net income. We don't want to see those big fluctuations quarter over quarter back down negative. They were negative at the first quarter, slight negative, I should say. And previously we saw with COVID, they crash way back down for sales and for earnings. We really need to see that sustainable to be investable. 
but it is on its right track. It's been diversifying between regions, expanding its operation locations, winning some big contracts with Zarka going forward. But we need to see them just keep doing more of that so they can be gain those uh, sustainable earnings. So I'll open up to you guys if you had any comments. Yeah, I no, mean, I mean, one <coughs> thing that I'll just say one thing that I noted is, um, you know, what five hundred million or sorry, five hundred million. Uh, what was it? It's about two point nice one million in uh, in earnings for the six month period, but then cash flow of only five hundred thousand. Um, so that's you know what we would want to see. Generally speaking, is that the cash flow is significantly higher than the reported net earnings in order to say that there is high earnings quality. Now, if it's one quarter, even two quarters, the cash flow can fluctuate, but that's something that you want to keep an eye on. And if it's consistently below the net income um, over a period of time, then, then we would say it's low earnings quality. Yeah, I mean, I think I said that Q1 uh, in the intro was a big quarter for them this year. I think it was Q2, actually, that was the biggest quarter for them. Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, So, But it, it, I mean, if you just look at the last four quarters in terms of volatility in the company, revenues in Q4 uh, to end out last year, 9.8 million. So very strong quarter, 2.4 million in operating income. Then the next quarter, 4.9 million in revenues, lost 500,000 operational basis. Uh, revenues in Q2 were 9.7 million. So tremendous profitability operating basis, 2.2 million. And then if you look at revenues in the last quarter, Q3, 5.9 million and just 500,000 in profit. You know, they stayed at a net profit, but, or at an operating profit, but, um, you know, wide fluctuation just in the past four quarters. And so on a trailing basis, I think those two quarters, the Q4 and Q2, uh, were the best in history of the company, essentially. So yes. it, it makes for a, a low PE. Are, are they going to be able to do that going forward is the question with the lumpiness. So uh, and perhaps, you know, backlog is something to really track closely if they're publishing that uh, and to see if that is increasing over time, because then you'd have some confidence if they can maintain a reasonable margin that, you know, over a 12-month period, you're going to execute on that backlog. And then uh, rolling forward, if the backlog could continue to increase, that's what you'd like to see. I mean, often when you're dealing with a company that is contract-driven, it is something to look at to give you confidence that at some point you'll, you may have one poor quarter, but it may smooth out over a year. And a backlog can give you some uh, confidence that that's going to happen. Uh, if you're flying in the dark from quarter to quarter, it's very difficult. But in a contract driven business, for sure. So, I mean, gatekeepers interesting for sure, uh, particularly based on the trailing valuations. Um, I'm not sure if did you track. Was there a backlog that you saw there? Did they? Uh, I did, did they not publish see something a like that? specific backlog. Yeah. I'll so it, that's that would be something we'd ask. Some industries it's far easier to do. Some companies are more uh, willing to put it out. Some aren't. Right. So uh, you know it'd be something that we'd want to look at because of the fluctuative nature on a quarterly basis at least. And if you could continue to see an uptick in that over time. Uh, then it might give you confidence to buy it and not look just quarter to quarter on it, look more on an annual basis what they could produce. So it's interesting. We'll probably uh, reach out to them again uh, at some point uh, going forward. All right. I think that's going to close out the show. Any shots at Brennan before he's not here? I mean, most of the shots are when he's here. here. So, (laughs) What do you mean? He's right there with his moose. Yeah, I did. 
Uh, I hope he's got the selfie. He better show us him and that moose. He'll probably be trampled by one and never found again. But we hope he's back next week. And we encourage you to keep your uh, questions coming into our Your Stock Our Take segments. If you're watching us on YouTube, smash that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, rate and review us. Uh, only five-star reviews, of course. And of course. Uh, I'd like to wish everybody profitable investing. Thank you. Great. Thank you. See you next week. Thanks, everyone.